I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Longtime listeners, you know the drill. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also. We want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving members. Just search for the show's name. We're once again thanking one of our Patreon patrons by making up a bullshit conspiracy and claiming that person is involved in those shenanigans. Today, we honor Chippy Von Tosti. We're kind of guessing on that pronunciation. A secret agent hired by the powerful white bread, beef, and gravy lobbies to burnish the image of the classic military meal creamed chipped beef on toast, more commonly known as shit on a shingle. We wish her the best, as she has her work cut out for her. If you'd like your name or your pseudonym to join the Roll of Honor at the top of a future show, just sign up at patreon.com forward slash the paranoid strain at the $5 tier. We thank you kindly, both for listening and for supporting. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line. Tell us what you think of the show. We're open to suggestions, criticisms, and recipes. Send them all to theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. What you may note you haven't heard yet is any connection from either of these stories to Bill Clinton. But that's where the Chronicle steps back in, with a lurid tale that, if true, would certainly mark the former president as an irredeemable monster. We jump back in as our narrators attempt to connect Clinton to Seal's Mina Airport, alleging with essentially no evidence that Seal was in fact using Arkansas as his cocaine distribution point, which again it probably wasn't. But of course, if Seal's dropping his drug in Louisiana, that story wouldn't leave room for Clinton, right? There was, in my opinion, more than enough evidence to prosecute a number of people for crimes regarding the Barry Seal case at Mena. I snuck around, crawled through the bushes, yeah. thinking that I'd really have to hide to see him unloading the dope. Didn't have to. And you could walk right up to the airport and they'd unload it right in front of you. They would unload it. They'd offload it. They didn't care. Uh, a certain degree of money laundering had taken place uh, among these people that were associated with Barry Seal. Clinton had integrated a number of corrupt cops, judges, and politicians into high-level positions to ensure the continued success of the drug smuggling and money laundering operations. All was going well until a fateful night in the fall of 1987. On August 22, 1987, Kevin had spent the night with his friend Don Henry. They left uh, Don's home around 12.30 or quarter to one uh, on the 23rd of August in early morning hours, and uh, the next thing we knew, they had been run over by a train. There seems to be a small airstrip in the area. There have been sightings and uh, reports of small airplanes flying very low with lights off in the area. I believe they saw something they shouldn't have seen. 
Three weeks later, their deaths were ruled accidental by the state. Ultimately, it was proven that Don Henry had been stabbed in the back and Kevin Ives' skull had been crushed prior to the placement of their bodies on the railroad tracks. However, Malik stood by his ruling that the boys had simply fallen asleep on the tracks. Malik had been kept in office at the insistence of Governor Clinton for a number of years, despite vigorous public outcry to have him removed. The story of those two kids' deaths has some real mystery to it. The initial coroner's findings that they got super-baked and fell asleep on the railroad tracks has been plausibly questioned, and it appears the two may actually have been murdered by persons unknown and then placed on the tracks to cover up that murder. On the other hand, the conclusion that the Clinton haters in the movie jump to is completely out of left field, unless you have already decided that, as previously mentioned, Bill Clinton is Satan incarnate. The people at the track that night, to my knowledge, were Dan Harmon, Keith McCaskill, Larry Rochelle. I do know that the boys were watching the drop site, okay? And they got curious as to what was being dropped there. The fact is, we know who killed these kids. The whole reason this case has been slowed down, stopped, wherever we're at. They can't do anything with it as long as Clinton's in office because it tracks right back to Bill Clinton being involved in the cover-up. He took care of everybody that ever covered anything up in this case. Everybody got promoted. A number of people approached the police with information about Don and Kevin's murders and consequently were murdered themselves. Shortly before Keith McCaskill was murdered, he, he knew that he was fixing to be murdered. He told his family goodbye, he told his friends goodbye. If the investigation was stalled until Clinton was out of office, then why hasn't it moved forward in the nearly 25 years since he left? This is a tragic story and probably an unsolved homicide, but the threats that supposedly bind Clinton to drug smuggling and murder are tenuous at best. And as that last clip started to mention, those kids were supposedly just the first of a long string of murders perpetrated by the Clintons to cover their misdeeds. Which brings us to a recent edition of the frequently updated Clinton body count story. Because decades have passed since the film was made, we needed an edition of more recent vintage. Luckily, his Kindle Unlimited subscription was happy to oblige. Yes, indeed. It appears that no one owns the copyright on the title The Clinton Body Count, so we had some choices. But we ended up perusing the new Clinton body count, Suspicious Political Deaths, by the presumably pseudonymous Press Gray, with an E at the end. That's a much better pseudonym than Fearful Jesuit. You're not wrong. Most of this is a repackaging of the original list with additional material concerning the Clinton corruptions, both real and imagined, that we touched on above. So, of course, that means a detailing of everyone that the former first couple knew who died during essentially a 20-year period where Bill was first governor and then president. It's similar to the supposed mysterious deaths that plagued the JFK investigation, and which we debunked back in our epic Assassinations JFK edition episode in the feed. So we see case files. Did you hear the scare quotes around that term? He intended that you would. About scenarios such as this, which we've abridged from the original. C. Victor Razor, age 52, acted as the finance co-chairman of Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign and was the strategic mind behind the cash flow. No idea what that means. Timeline, Thursday, July 30th, 1992. On the way to a fishing expedition, Victor Razor and his son, along with three other passengers, were killed when their Haviland Beaver float plane crashed on the outskirts of Dillingham, Alaska. Only the pilot and a sixth unknown passenger survived. The NTSB report simply cited pilot error as the cause of the accident. No serious problems with the airplane were found in the investigation of the crash. You may be wondering why the Clintons would have had this guy murdered. Like, what dirt did he have? What unspeakable secrets died with him? 
On that, the book is totally mute. Like, there's no suggestion of any reason the Clintons would have had to kill this guy who worked for them. It's left up to the presumably billery-loathing reader to draw his or her, but, let's face it, mostly his, own conclusions about why this man was murdered. This is one of several small plane crashes in which Clinton associates tragically perish that are noted throughout this book. There's even one of them that raised mainstream eyebrows at the time. Ron Brown, then Secretary of Commerce in Clinton's cabinet, was under investigation for potentially accepting bribes from foreign powers when he died with 34 other people in an Air Force plane crash in Croatia. There were lingering questions at the time among non-lunatics about the fact that Brown's death took some heat off the Clintons. But of course, coincidences happen all the time. Not that we're going to convince any conspiracy theorists. Let's briefly put this idea through its paces and see how it holds up to minimal critical scrutiny. What would you need to know in order to determine whether these crashes indicated a murderous pattern of conspiracy? Well, first of all, how many people do Bill or Hillary Clinton know? Also, how many people have worked for them or their causes over the years? How many planes of that size crash in a given year? What's the total number of plane crashes we would expect in the huge personal business and political circles of the average president of the United States? How does the total number of people who died in plane crashes associated with the Clintons compare to the total number of people who died in plane crashes who knew the Bushes, or Reagan, or Obama, or Trump? I mean, if three or four people Jesuit knew over the past 20 years all went down like the big bobber, that would be super suspicious. I know I wouldn't be jumping in any body hall and killing prop numbers if that were the case. But he knows maybe a thousand people at the outside? The Clintons have undoubtedly personally interacted with tens or even a hundred thousand people over their careers, and perhaps millions can be tied to them in some way. How surprising, given those numbers, are a few plane crash victims. Of course, the book offers no analysis of these factors whatsoever. There are a bunch of other quote-unquote mysterious deaths listed, a tragic one-car accident of Clinton's sign language interpreter in 92, for example. Why she posed a threat, who had to be silenced, goes totally unmentioned. There's also a standard array of heart attacks and strokes hitting people at fairly young ages, etc. For many of these, there's not even an attempt to concoct a plausible motive for the Clintons' hit squads to have targeted these people. It's just throwing shit at the idea of the Clintons' malfeasance and seeing what sticks. Obviously, Vince Foster's definitely not a suicide gets a lot of ink, but we already covered that. The film ends with some very 1990s attacks on Clinton, that his attempts to ingratiate himself with the Christian right by waving his born-again bona fides to distract from his sex scandals is disingenuous and gross. Which, like, agreed? And that since he was a draft dodger, he's gonna destroy my military. Clinton could get us involved in a hopeless quagmire, uh, easily, in Europe, in Africa in North Korea, in any number of places, because not only of his ineptness and his lack of understanding, but his contempt for military things. This goes back at least as far as the 60s in his college days, when he not only attended and participated in anti-American rallies, but organized them. Uh, back in the, and, and incidentally, those were not anti-war rallies. Those were anti-American rallies. He has no loyalty to this nation. He has no loyalty to its fighting men. He has not enough integrity to have any loyalty to its population. He knows how to say the right things, but he's lied for so long that I really don't think he knows the difference anymore between the lie and the truth. It would be a fun exercise to go back, find the folks who were in this film, and ask them what they think of known sexual predator, draft dodger, and accused insulter of servicemen and women as losers and suckers, Donald Trump. 
I'm going to guess that time has softened their stances on these qualities as being disqualifying for presidential fitness, at least when DJT is on the ballot. Now, once again, it's weird that these people all resorted to this ridiculous bullshit, creating the echo chamber that Hillary referred to famously as the great story here for anybody willing to find it and write about it and explain it is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. Which people have ridiculed her for, but, you know, was probably a pretty fair assessment of the situation at the time. It is. But of course, that doesn't absolve the Clintons of their many ethical shortcomings over the years, as demonstrated by late left-winger turned Iraq war supporter and untouchably brilliant polemicist Christopher Hitchens who wrote a book at the end of the Clinton presidency titled No One Left to Lie To, excoriating both Clintons on factual grounds, as he was only too happy to share in this Charlie Rose episode. The Clinton, you say, are not political. They are to do with, with, a, with, a, with a ruthless a megalomaniac political style and with a re real self-advertised readiness for, for corruption and dirty work. I always thought this new liberal Democrat, or rather, excuse me, was a bit glib and a bit sordid because if you, after eight years of Reagan and four of Bush, to conclude that the main problem in American politics was that the Democratic Party was too much to the left, seemed to me a weird conclusion. And it was all based on saying, well, we, what we've really got to do is address the morals of the underclass. That's the real problem with this country, is the underclass doesn't behave well. I thought that actually there were some overclass problems that needed attention. Bill Clinton is, you know, for you, almost the embodiment of all evil. Well, I think he's an abnormally ghastly individual in every respect, yes. In every respect? Every respect, yeah. Because he lies about? Because he lies about everything to everyone. No, which is the title of the book. Yeah, he uses his daughter as a prop, he uses the help as comfort women, and then uses public money to defame them and blackmail them. Suppose that one had got oneself into some indiscretion of that sort. Right. It's impossible to imagine it happening. I can imagine doing various things. Yeah. in the hope of, you know, salvaging myself. But among them would not be appearing in front of the cameras holding my daughter's hand. I just, I know I wouldn't do that. Judgment Call me old-fashioned, there are some things oh, I no, just no, no. won't do. <laughs> well, remember what I'm pushing back against. I'm pushing back against a huge consensus of people who said, for a long, long time, all this is his private stuff, it's none of our affair. I mean, they didn't say that about other corrupt presidents. So this, this corrupt president and this crooked president has come with a huge bodyguard of falsity and propaganda supplied by intellectuals and academics and journalists for him, which Mr. Nixon couldn't count on getting, didn't get, nor Mr. Reagan. So it seemed to me, yeah, it was more, it was more incumbent upon me to say, say what I thought and to point out how people were fooling themselves and fooling others. One of the things that Mr. Clinton uh, does when his comfort women don't suit his purposes any longer is he arranges to have them defamed. You know, Jennifer Flowers was called a liar and a gold digger and all of this. And I won't take you through the whole story. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. In the Lewinsky case, before they knew she had any forensic evidence, they put out the story that she was trying to blackmail the president, that she was saying to him, if you don't sleep with me, I'll say that you have. Now, it bears on the question of obstruction of justice because we know that they tried to find her various public and private jobs, public sector and private sector jobs, to, to secure a perjured affidavit. That's well, but, say, but there's a link that you can't, I mean, you know. Wait a second. They, they well, did. They, they did. Did they not? Try to find her public jobs? Certainly. I mean, public, private jobs, sure. Private. sure. And public at the U UN, with the US US Richardson. At the UN, the Pentagon, the White House, right, right, couldn't right. do enough for her. Right. It happens she gave a perjured affidavit. Could okay. be there's no connection. Okay, but, but. And if those comments aren't enough for you, here's Hitch on C SPAN 2's book chat around the same time. This president, let me put it like this, maybe because I'm an immigrant to this country, I'm, I perhaps am too easily overcome with reverence, but it seems to me one of the things about Clintonism is that it's, a, it's profane, it's blasphemed. 
by turning the uh, Oval Office into a sort of cheap uh, massage parlour, the Lincoln bedroom into a sort of cheap motel for fat cats, and Arlington Cemetery into something that can be franchised for fundraising. Mr. Lawrence invented a war record for himself so that he could, along with a hefty donation, have himself buried in Arlington Cemetery and he and his wife appointed to uh, diplomatic positions and so on. When it was all discovered that this had been a fraud, he had to be dug up out of Arlington Cemetery and reburied. Now that would get me down. In my book I say that I do believe that the president used um, military force in a capricious and promiscuous way to save his own skin in Sudan last August, the bombings of Khartoum and of Kabul, and also later the uh, Christmas time or impeachment time bombings of um, Baghdad. I think I've made that case, if, if you don't find it convincing, I can only say that so far no one, has re no one has rebutted or attempted to rebut this hypothesis. There's a great deal of evidence to show that the president, on his own initiative, used what should have been American military force for entirely private and corrupt purposes related to his own court calendar. It's the most shocking allegation to be made, I think, against the president. And the, the, the appalling fact that it's true hasn't sunk into people yet because I don't think they can quite take it, but they'll have to face it. He had plenty to say about Hillary's run in 2008 as well. And we can only imagine what a field day he would have had in 2016 lambasting both candidates had his love of cigarettes not taken from us far too soon. So the Clintons brought some of their opprobrium on themselves. But there was still something different about the wildness of the accusations, the apparent feeling that the Clintons' evil knew no possible bounds, that their lies covered a black ocean of evil secrets. This was different than standard-issue political smearing at the time. And as Fenstrup notes, even the wilder conspiracies were paid at least lip service by more legitimate-seeming outlets, like the Washington Times and the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, which wouldn't have touched grassroots Bircher-style conspiracy theorizing in previous decades. And you can trace a straight line from anti-Clinton hysteria to the screaming, frothing, partisan mess we find ourselves in now. Ironically, of course, one of the Clintons is still front and center in the conspiracy scaffolding that QAnon has built atop the many strands of paranoia provided by the 1990s that we covered here. And with that, unbelievably, I think we're ready to talk about what QAnon's done since we last checked in on them. Remind me when that actually was, Dana? Like, summer of 2020? When you talked about how dumb everything they said about the pandemic was? Oh, that's not that long ago. How much crazier could things possibly have gotten since then? terrible dream. All of those different strands of paranoid historical thought drawing together into a pussy reservoir of irrational, quasi-psychotic raving with violent, often fascistic and fundamentalist overtones waiting to erupt into some sort of violent pimple of hatred. Thank goodness I woke up. Now, let's take a look outside. I'm assuming this QAnon thing is withered up and blown away in the year or so since we started covering this topic. Suez Canal, remember that? Mm. It was deliberately okay. knocked into that and lodged in there because what was on it? Thousands and thousands of children and women, the sex trafficking, and adrenochrome, and also those vaccines. 
uh, the calm before the storm. It's like, again, you don't tell the Do you think people will take up arms? Oh, and I'm looking forward to that. That is our constitutional right. I would love a physical battle, but I know Who what are you I'm going to be fighting. Elites or whatever, or the UN, the supposed UN. Yes, please. Mainstream media, all complacent. They but admitted it. It's always and it's never changed. That's us. So I'm yeah. Again, I don't, honey. You just work for them. I call you an innocent, and you're a baby too. I will be there to defend you. My dad thought that he'd carry out martial law. Donald Trump would. Yeah. 21-year-old Rebecca and other close family members say her father grew isolated working from home during the pandemic and became so obsessed with QAnon that he grew paranoid. Oh, he got a gun and shot, tried to kill everyone in my family, and I probably he would have tried to kill me too if I was there. On September 11th, he killed Rebecca's mother, the family dog, and shot her sister. He was then killed in a standoff with police who say they are investigating any specific motive, which is yet to be determined. How was your dad? Former President Trump has long flirted with QAnon, but this illustrated meme he reshared last week with QAnon slogans and a Q on his lapel is one of his most brazen endorsements of the conspiracy theory. Even President Donald J. Trump put that on there, a guy wearing a Q pin, storm is upon us, patriots are in control. Hosts on this QAnon radio show celebrating. And that is the reason that you are all here, because you know the truth. You all know who Donald Trump really is. You all know who the fight is really about and who the players are that actually want to destroy our country. You have to get off the news. You have to go someplace else and find it. Can you point to me a single judge that has ruled that the election was stolen or that there was malfeasance that would have overturned the results of any state? Look at the Supreme Court. Well, the Supreme Court hasn't accepted any of these cases either. How do you know that? Because they have a docket and they list what cases they review and they issue their opinions. If you choose to believe that, you can believe that, but I have alternative news that I find out differently. What do you think? Obama is playing Sleepy Joe Biden in a mask. George Woods, the actor, is playing Sleepy Joe trying to wake people up by pretending to spend all this money in Ukraine that he signs and... and He's signing a blank paper. Tupac's still alive? Yep. Where's he? Jackson is still alive. Where are they? And there were Trump. Well, they're in the... And I'm, we're out here, damn it. I would have loved to have seen Tupac. I'll show you a picture. Do you follow QAnon? The FBI says it's a dangerous conspiracy theory. Do I follow... No, I don't follow QAnon. I follow the missing children. I have a child right now in Ohio that my team is saving. That's what I want to talk about. Not a conspiracy. You posted about, Q, you posted about QAnon yesterday, right? On your Instagram story? Photos actually show that Trump hosted Liz Crocken one of the more prominent QAnon supporters for a fundraiser in support of a so-called documentary on sex trafficking. Crocking claimed that she spoke with Trump about Pizzagate. You may remember that was the conspiracy theory that falsely claimed that Democrats were running a child sex trafficking ring within a pizza parlor here in Washington. And don't forget, this all comes just weeks after Donald Trump met with Kanye West and far-right white supremacist Nick Fuentes at the same spot there at Mar-a-Lago. So, I'm wrong yet again. And by the way, those were just randomly chosen quotes from like the top five YouTube results I found when I limited my search to QAnon craziness from the past two years. In addition, thanks to some of the many Straniacs who are members of our Facebook group, I have a number of other update topics to cover, in addition to the material that I've gathered myself. I'm going to try to mention those who clued me into the additional topics that I'll be covering soon. 
But as he kind of implied, he's almost definitely going to fuck that attempt up. So please take any errors as well intentioned. So where to begin? In lieu of making Dana retool the wheel of arbitrary episode starting points, or more specifically, because he asked, and I said no. I'm just going to call an audible and jump straight back to the aftermath of the QAnon COVID debacle. As we noted, that was where we stopped with our QAnon coverage back in 2020, at which point we couldn't have imagined how politicized the COVID issue would become in the years since then. Though living in post-2016 America, he probably should have imagined exactly that. And there remains a variety of relatively mainstream opinions on everything from healthy people's ongoing need for vaccines. Please note, by mainstream, we don't mean equally valid. The billions of shots that have been administered since 2021 offer incredibly compelling additional evidence, if any was needed, that the various COVID vaccines are one of the most astonishing and safest medical innovations in human history. And that everyone who cares about the sick and infirm among us, and who didn't have some health issue that would prevent them from being vaccinated, should have gotten at least the first couple of doses. What he's saying here is that while one side is wrong, they aren't making arguments necessarily hamstrung by gibbering insanity. For example, as with literally all medical interventions, including aspirin, their measurable, if vanishingly rare and nearly all minuscule side effects of all vaccines, and therefore the arguments against may be debated in something like good faith. Yes, and the same goes for masks. Okay, okay, I hear a bunch of you yelling at me. You think this podcast listening thing only goes one way, but it turns out there's a secret feature that I can pay for that lets me stream audio from users' Bluetooth headphones while they listen to my show. I hardly need to tell you he's lying, right? Damn it, Dana. I'm trying to start a conspiracy theory here. I understand that's where the big bucks are. But seriously, about the mask thing, I want you to know that, as good Bay Area citizens, we wore the hell out of our masks. And it's likely that our local peer group's strong compliance with the state-issued mask mandates probably had some positive impacts on the region's various COVID, Delta, Omega, etc. curves. But if you missed it, there was a very thorough, carefully controlled meta-study from Cochrane a while back that concluded that mask mandates as a policy weren't very effective in most cases. Again, and we feel like much of the mainstream coverage of the study didn't hammer this home, the Cochrane study concluded that, in aggregate, most mandates didn't do much. But that's because, as all of us know, about half the people you saw wearing masks were like hanging the masks off one ear or pulling it down below their noses because, as is well known, airborne diseases simply cannot pass through that powerful nose hair and snot barrier. The Cochrane study is designed to help craft better policy going forward and is not telling you you were stupid to wear a mask when you were asked to or that in reality the QAnon loon who you saw on video a few years back destroying the Target mask display. This shit's all fucking over. This shit's fucking over. This shit's over. This shit's over. Was right and you were wrong. Definitely not. But this is probably a good time for us to let our probably left-leaning audience know that we're going to cover some stuff in this section about Q and Trump that might make them a bit uncomfortable. If you're used to presuming that my admittedly center-left tendencies will keep you safe from challenging ideas, you may be disappointed when we start talking about the Russian dossier, the lab leak theory, and the reporting ethos of, for example, MSNBC during the Trump era. Now, the point we were trying to get to is that while obviously all of the conversation around COVID has unfortunately been politicized, and while there are much stronger arguments on one side of that political divide than the other, 
For the most part, we're going to focus on total batshittery and not these lopsided but still more mainstream arguments. Before we do that, though, we do need to touch on some fascinating developments that have arisen since our first mention of one controversy, an area where the evidence has gotten decidedly less one-sided than it was when we first reported on it three years ago. This is a suggestion that the only viable origin theory for COVID is a one that suggests it jumped via interspecies transmission from one of the animals in the Wuhan area meat market to one of the people buying their meat there. Right, and we noted previously, there was reason even way back in 2020 to give a little credence to the alternative theory, whereby the seemingly salient fact that in the same general Wuhan neighborhood there just happened to be a biological research lab, and that lab just happened to be working on viruses that are in the same general class as COVID. And that that might just mean that the coronavirus that caused all this havoc originated in this same lab. As part of the aforementioned politicization of everything about the coronavirus, this topic immediately became a part of the received wisdom of each side. But while certainly a lot of magination embraced the deliberate terrorist release of a Chinese bioweapon subvariant of the lab leak theory, and that version remains completely unsupported, ridiculous, and, usually, at least a little bit racist. It does seem to us that the side that, broadly, we find ourselves on... The side that tends to put lawn signs out assuring everyone that in their house, they trust science, among other liberal left platitudes. Yeah, that side. Well, and this is definitely introducing a theme that we're going to come back to over and over in this final section, but the Trump era's damage isn't limited to the right. It has also had the perverse effect of driving liberals and left-wingers into a reactive attitude that can be expressed as, essentially, if Trumpers believe it, it is necessarily bullshit. Which is always a dangerous assumption to make. Reflexively opposing anything a person says because that person said it is a real dumb place to be. It's actually one of them logical fallacies we like to point out. In this case, the argumentum ad hominem, or argument from the man. Meaning, you can reject arguments because the person who's saying them is wrong about something else, or smells bad, or thinks maple syrup tastes good, for example. I know. He hates maple syrup. It's weird. I'm not the weird one, Dana. The people who eat sweetened, boiled tree blood on their gross pancakes and waffles are fucked up, not me. But back to the subject, using any logical fallacies can only lead you into error. In this case, because however loathsome your opponent may be, they're going to be at least accidentally right every so often, and by automatically disagreeing with them, you're going to force yourself to be wrong when that happens. Which makes you look, well, dumb. Remember when we said Jesuit hated W's monkey face? Well, that is true. But in a real effort to countermand his natural distaste, he forced himself to accept that he agreed with at least two of the former president's policies. That is, the remarkably effective PEPFAR anti-AIDS program that has tremendously benefited a huge number of people in sub-Saharan Africa, and his proposed but ultimately rejected plan to index social security increases to rises in inflation instead of rises in productivity, which would help stabilize the fund without negatively impacting the living standards of seniors. So, what we're saying is, if Jesuit can do it, you can do it. It's unpleasant to listen to valid arguments issued by people you don't like, or even who you think are actually evil, but it's both doable and necessary. And one of the things that most of us dismissed too readily at first was the narrow version of the lab leak theory. As with many of us center lefties, the first time I had cause to re-examine this assumption on my part was when comedy saint of the 2000s Jon Stewart made a surprise appearance on Stephen Colbert's late night show and said some stuff that, while kind of off the cuff, 
it made a lot of sense. There's, there's a chance that this was created in a lab. There's an investigation. A chance? There's a know. novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. So wait a minute, you work at the Wuhan respiratory coronavirus lab. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili and now we all have coronavirus. Like, yeah, you listen to that and it makes you rethink some of your baseline assumptions. And in the years since, the lab leak theory has, if anything, become still more plausible. So I was forced to double check what I said about this whole thing in our first COVID episode back in 2020 to make sure I didn't say anything super stupid and overly dismissive. Fortunately, I didn't. You can, of course, re-listen and verify, but if anyone's going to rake Jesuit over the coals for a mistake, it's Jesuit himself. And while he appreciated every correction, for example, of the fact that so many of you noticed that he recently credited Brave New World to H.G. Wells instead of Aldous Huxley, every one of your responses made his eyes bleed. Metaphorically. Not because you were wrong to say it, but because he was wrong to fuck it up. Anyway, he got the lab leak relatively right. Yeah, I'm going to give myself a pass on this one. While I didn't say it was likely, I did say it couldn't be dismissed out of hand, though the more extreme versions, the ones that suggested COVID was deliberately developed as a bioweapon and then released either on purpose or accidentally, continue to have no evidence behind them whatsoever. And while we may never get a clear and definitive answer on this, given the Chinese government's complete refusal to work with foreign experts to research and nail down the facts, the lab leak theory definitely has yet to be disproved, has at least some reasonable evidence behind it, and is a totally valid potential conclusion. Or, to quote Catherine Ebbins, sober, thoughtful article in the March 2023 issue of Vanity Fair, There is fragmentary and circumstantial evidence supporting two credible but dueling hypotheses. One, that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, spilled over to humans from an infected animal at the wet market in Wuhan, where the disease first exploded into view. Or two, that the virus originated in a nearby laboratory in Wuhan. The Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was known to pursue risky coronavirus research, is roughly eight miles from the market. Even closer sits the Wuhan Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which also operates laboratories. So, in reality, we're still left pretty close to the status quo that obtained back in 2020, except that these days, some U.S. government departments lean toward the animal contamination theory, and some lean toward the lab leak. It's worth noting, though, that none of these declarations are delivered with high confidence, and once again with feeling, there's still no evidence whatsoever that COVID was a bioweapon or that it was deliberately released. Which, again, are the conspiracists' preferred narratives. 